Hey everybody, today is your lucky day, because today we have a new episode, a new, thrilling, compelling, dynamic episode of the Voxology Podcast, and wow. so here we are, here you are, let, let us reason together, as the scriptures say. Where there you are. are. So Tim, hello, how are you? This is uh, Mike Erie, by the way, and Timothy John Stafford. I'm great. On the, on the other I'm end, up. you're you're great. You're up. You're yep. up and moving. It's early morning. School's back in session. Yeah. Just got done taking my kids in. How'd that feel? Feels good. This is the only year of their entire lives where they will be at the same school on the same schedule. Oh. So this enjoy. is the this is the enjoy. year to relish, and then it's over. The golden year. Yep. The golden year. I'm on the other end of that spectrum. Our second child no longer a child dear hannah started her senior year so as they say it's her last first day last first day until her next first first day yep in a whole different whole different jam so um yeah it's mixed mixed over here in the erie household i'm not i'm not gonna lie yeah not gonna lie um but i remember the days when going back to school was great news for the parents. It was like, yes. yep, it's time. Yeah. Summer. It's time. <laughs> if only Summer. they could take the heat with them. Well, I don't know about you, man. I, I don't... When I when I was growing up, August was a summer month. It wasn't a school month. I feel like that's correct. Yeah. I feel like September was when, it, when all the shenanigans started back up. Exactly. I mean, it's and called so the fall semester. Right. I don't know who decided, but like in Tennessee... Seth started back like on August 6th. I mean, that's the yeah. whole month. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's like, no, come on, Thanks, guys. Obama. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, speaking of thanks, I want to thank Obama. <laughs> I want to thank Jonathan, and I want to thank Kim. Uh, everyone on that list except Obama joined our Patreon community this week. And so Jonathan and Kim, thank you so very much for your generosity and thoughtfulness and uh, we're grateful for that you can go to voxologypodcast.com and uh, there are two different platforms if you want to again we're crowdfunded 501c3 nonprofit all of that sex deductible blah 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 but we are incredibly grateful for uh, the whole community that is um, a part of this thing and the the way the community really blesses uh, us isn't even in the generosity, although that's a great gift. It's in the emails, the super thoughtful emails that we get from people. And so we talked um, last episode to a person that was in a medical profession dealing with pain meds and how do you beat Jesus like in the midst of this. And, yeah. you know, I was stumbling around trying to figure out how to be helpful. Um, but we have some other folks who, and we actually got several comments, emails. I got a text from somebody who was like, Hey, my wife deals with this all the time. Um, who have some thoughts. So yeah. Timothy, Timothy, the voice of an angel Stafford is going to, oh. uh, read some of these. And again, with permission, but we always, I mean, we think it's a, an important part of our community is to read these other perspectives and when people take the time out to kind of share uh, a bit of their story we want to honor that as much as we can so 
Yeah, this is the real, I love these emails because it's the people, all of our ideas are so esoteric about faith stuff. Yes. And this is like day-to-day -day flesh and blood. It's a real deal, y'all. The real deal. All right. Hello, Seth. Mike That's and it. Tim. Yeah, in that order. Although, uh, no, Tim should come before Mike. <clears throat> She's a long-time listener, first-time emailer. Thank you for um, She's thankful for the podcast, but she's emailing in because she wanted to respond to um, the assistant, the physical assistant in the pain management and how to be more Christ-like. She's also a physician's assistant who specializes in addiction medicine. Um, oh, wow. And there's an overlap in our patient populations. This is the specialty I never thought I'd find myself in, but here I am and I've been doing it for a while now and I love it. Uh, same with the pain management patients. There is obviously a stigma when you have an addiction, even when you are, even when you are seeking help for it. People mm -hmm. ask me why I do this. After all, I came from doing pediatric orthopedic surgery wow. for many years, so quite a jump. I simply tell them everyone is somebody's son or daughter and worth fighting for. That'll preach. A lot, a lot of my patients are the least of these: homeless, right out of jail, prison, abused, significant mental health conditions. If it were my child, I would hope someone like myself or your previous emailer is caring for them with a Christ-like compassion. That's a good awesome. portion of my patients are also everyday people that you would have no idea what is going on with them, and they want to be treated with respect, even if their choices and lives don't seem to match up. So, to your emailer, how to not be over the patients that you want to help. I get lied to, manipulated, and straight up yelled and cursed at every day. Uh, but it is the good stories that make it worth it. Seeing lives change, families healed, it can happen. No matter if someone has struggled with substance abuse since they were 16 or just came to us after a doctor cut off their opioid medication and they have realized they are dependent on it, come to them with humility. I know you are in pain and just know that I want to help you. This is her quote, like it in quotes. Yeah. This is a chronic condition that there is no quick and easy answer for, but I think we can work together to find the best way to help you. Obviously, mm -hmm. this is not going to work with everybody. Maybe just keep a list of your patient stories that remind you of why you went into this specialty. I have, uh, I know I have to some days. A little message for those of you who have someone struggling with addiction or work with people who do, or, you're, or you pastor someone who struggles. A coworker recently left to move out of state. In a final goodbye to the staff, he said something that will stay with me forever. Create a reality that people do not want to escape from. Oh, who better boom. to show love and compassion to others and create a reality that they don't that they won't want to use drugs and alcohol to escape from, especially to the least of these, than Christ followers like ourselves. Dang, good stuff, man. That is really good. Thank you so much for that perspective. That's great. Seth, Mike, and Tim. This is another email. Yep. Same intro. That's funny. Same intro. I wanted I to respond that. to the question brought to you about prescribing opioids. Mm. I'm a duly licensed mental health therapist, which basically means I have an extra license that is specific to drug and alcohol counseling. Oh, wow. I also have a background in working in child welfare. Over the years, I've had many clients doctor hop in order to get prescriptions they want. I cannot imagine the pressure doctors are under to prescribe these, especially in the emergency rooms. Wow. As a therapist, this is an area where mental health and traditional medicine collide. In what I have seen, there are too many instances of people being prescribed addictive substances without an exit plan. They just keep getting them either from their doctor, doctor shopping, or the streets. The research is starting to show that the opposite of addiction is connection. 
Mm. That's interesting. One of the reasons yeah. people become addicted is because of relational disconnectedness. Wow. From my vantage point, people who are continuing use should be set up with a therapist knowledgeable about addiction and or social support group. One of the best books I have read on this in recent years was Addiction Nation by Timothy McMahon King. He mm. shares his story of becoming addicted to opioids and how his doctor met him where he was at. Oh, nice. I like that. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. Man. See, the, the, the original question and then these responses, like, it doesn't get any more Jesus-y than that. Yes. You know what I mean? Yep. In the, in the, because it's so easy. I mean, you were right. It's just so easy to opine on these issues in, you know, some uh, abstract microphone place. Right. Um, but to hear those stories, I find that just so inspiring that there are people out there like that doing, doing that really, really hard. And are work. that intentional with seeing the humanity and people and meeting that humanity and that disconnectedness. I think that's really interesting to think about in regards to at least like alcoholism. Yeah. In our town, the opioid thing has gotten really bad where people keep getting, um, they get prescribed medicine for, you know, like a broken back or, you know, pain meds and then they can't afford it and they're getting into heroin because heroin's cheaper here and has similar effects. Oof. And then it's just, you know, as you can imagine, starts to spin out from there but it's become a big deal in this area for for folks which is dark and sad and oh man and i don't know the first thing about how to how to walk with somebody in that so these these kind of things are really helpful yeah great job you guys thank you for emailing in and then we had uh i think you said one other this one is on um the masculinity conversation um someone wrote in to offer a different perspective into that um, mm. stuff with Jordan Peterson. <coughs> Excuse me. Vaping. Um, I wanted to add to the conversation about Jordan Peterson, gender in the church. Mm. I'm a gay Christian male committed to the traditional Christian sexual ethic, and I'm going on eight years of mixed orientation marriage. I'm oh, not my ex-gay, word. But I love my wife and find beauty in her. Whoa. I've heard people like Just Peterson. What? Just wow. Yeah. I can't I've even heard uh, voices like Peterson's before, and they are the primary reason why many churches are not safe for people like me. Mm. I grew up in the era of gay jokes, casual homophobia, and acceptable acceptable bigotry. Mm. That's a big term, acceptable bigotry. Mm. I hid my crushes, of course, but I also changed the way I spoke. I faked crushes on girls and adjusted nearly every aspect of my personality to try and pass. I've had churchgoers demand that I change my entire personality to fit their definition of masculinity, call me an abomination, and claim that Jesus will heal me if I just pray hard enough. Mm-hmm. It isn't enough for those church folk that I affirm every tenet of the faith they do, nor is it enough that I am in a heterosexual marriage with kids. I, ju- I must match their definition of mm-hmm. a man. Yeah. Wow. Uh, the fact that I prefer musicals over machine guns or wine over beer isn't a part of who I am. It's a crime against the natural order. And oh. Jordan Peterson lends his psychological background to this hogwash. In the book of Genesis, according to Jordan, I'm supposed to uh, have a walk in a garden, find a woman, nurture a family, build an ark, conquer a land, build a ladder to heaven, and face a terrible life. But the Bible set, but the Bible I read says I'm supposed to care for the garden, not walk in it that God Mm. provides a partner for Adam. 
that the ark was a symbol of dependence on God, not Noah's manhood. Oh, God, come on! <laughs> that God conquered the land, not Israel. Oh, that Babel was the result of uh, trying to build a ladder to heaven. And that life is full of joy and love because God is good, despite the brokenness of the world. Oh, good Lord. That is amazing. Yeah, that whole section's That whole section is amazing. Oh, geez, that's so good. I read that God never stops fighting for justice for the earth and for the least of these. Every ill-spoken bastardization of the scripture that Peterson speaks is salt in the wounds left by so many who claim to follow Christ and called me less than. To this day, the number of people I am honest with about my sexuality is extremely small because of the hypergenderism is so pervasive. Mm. I'm not angry at Peterson. I'm angry at a church that persists in tolerating people like him. Mm. Men who claim to have a message from God but put it in monetized YouTube videos and behind partisan paywalls. Yet, I must love Christ's bride. I want to ask Peterson his own question. Who cares what you believe? (laughs) Dang! Yeah. Okay, first of all, that is so well written. Like, yeah, it's, it's like a poetic article. Seriously, you could read that like as a sermon or something, man. That was yeah. And and I here's the thing. What whether you are affirming or not affirming on all of that, um there is a community of people that we've talked with and interviewed and who listen who are in that same place of affirming the kind of historically orthodox view and yet are unashamedly same-sex attracted and 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 the fact that there is little room in the church for people who are that loyal to jesus um is is beyond heartbreaking and so i don't know i mean i'm just so um thankful that someone would share their story and I that that's one of those like I think I want to copy and paste that paragraph, right? And just put it somewhere. No, it's very beautifully written and has a lot of heavy stuff in it. That's very true. My wife and I were talking. The more I read about gender, the more I have seen how like how broad the spectrum is, and how people don't just fall into two categories, but that there's a lot of room on that. Yeah, for a lot. Of, and we were talking about within regards to. You know how the church perf- traditionally has performed gender functions, where it's like, "Hey, hey, men, we're having a Super Bowl party this week," and da 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 da. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, women, yeah. we're gonna go and knit something or whatever. Like these are obviously <laughs> dramatic uh, characters. But, it, but no, but it's true. I've it is been true. in churches where you—it's exactly that. But most of the girlfriends that I have here would love football yeah. and would love to be at. Uh, Super Bowl parties and yep, yep. know a lot about the teams and a lot about the game and the sport itself. And then a lot of the guys, you know, like myself, I'm not a big football person. What? I do, I do love art and, uh, and that kind of stuff more. And that those are traditionally more feminine qualities. And it's just crazy how... It's just dumb to be la- even labeled those things. It is. So it's like you see in something like this that the church will make these categories that some men fit into that a lot of men want to fit into and that a ton don't fit into. Exactly. And it just creates these environments in the house of God where people don't feel comfortable yeah. existing and they feel like they have to perform. And it's just... Yeah. Which also led me... Here's a question for you. Um, Whoa. Yeah. I With everything that's been going on politically over the last 
forever, but especially in this last week with uh, our previous president and the way that his party has been responding to um, the the FBI raid of 2022. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking more and more about truth and what is truth and how we live in s- at such a time period. It seems more so than I've I can remember where truth is completely subjective. Yeah, and we see it with the church also because the church at large, the the church that gets the headlines, is constantly altering truth to fit a narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. So how do you, and then, but also things like, you know, if you think about the new creation series or stuff like that, and we're, uh, um, researching and, and rediscovering true definitions of things like hell or that kind of stuff, truth there becomes organic and, or our understanding of truth evolves. Mm-hmm. So what is truth, Mike? i was thinking about it all week i was just like man this is all like everybody keeps shifting yeah yeah and with the rule of law like in america the rule of law is there are actual laws but we keep twisting the definitions of them to fit the scenario that we want to publicize or push forth totally it's just made a really interesting wrestling match in my head all week of like how do you advocate for truth if you live in a world where all truth is subjective yeah Exactly. And that was, I mean, that was some of the very early postmodern um, deconstructionists around literature, Richard Rorty and others, mm-hmm. that, that narratives, all that's left are narratives and narratives are just power games. So um, any, any totalitizing narrative has to be held in suspect or in question or held suspect, excuse me, um, because the 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 human impulse is to squash diversity and provide uniformity and force conformity and um so there were these deep suspicions and this goes back in in the history of philosophy i mean to wittgenstein to um to others who who saw language as not having always objective reference but rather uh, was a way. It was a form of spin, and it was a form of the exercise of power. Yeah. And um, so, my favorite definition of truth comes from D. Willie. D. Willie, uh, who didn't use the word truth, he used the word reality in this quote. But he said, mm. "Reality is what you bump into when you're wrong." And I thought that is absolutely beautiful. So there are different ways, at, at least philosophically, to say that something's true. You can say that truth is what corresponds to reality. And something is true if it represents reality accurately. Um, Perspectivalists will say, but there's no one can can access objective reality without some sort of interference from their own particular point of view. So there is no purely objective observer looking over the whole thing without filters and motives and unconscious bias. And so the, the idea there is that you can't access objective reality, even if you believe it exists. And so what you're left with are approximations that are ultimately power games. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the things I think the Bible suggests in a really radical way um, is that truth is relationship. 
um, truth is relational. Truth yeah. is communal. Now that you can say, well, that just punts the subjective question, you know, away from the individual onto a community. And in one sense, it absolutely does. But when you realize the goal of the Bible isn't to rehearse God's objective truth and for his people to believe it, but rather it's to form a community that aligns with the reality of the kingdom of God that has come and is coming, then truth gets a little more interesting yeah. uh, beyond just Less the objective. Yes, yes. So it's, you know, I believe that the Bible is this and Jesus was that and okay, okay, okay. But those things are actually only believed when they're embodied in community. And so uh, for me, truth has become, I still believe uh, objective truth exists, right? I mean, gravity is real regardless of of whether or not you deny it. But not when you leave the atmosphere. True. (laughs) See? See how slippery? No. Um, But I'm still what's called a realist. I think there's a real world out there that we access through our senses. Um, but I do think, and, and the scriptures are the great example of this. So, uh, your view of the Bible can either be the Bible is objectively true and anyone can see it. And if, and if you can't, then you're missing it. The meaning resides in the text and, um, not in the reader. Then you have on the other side, the meaning doesn't reside in the text at all. It resides exclusively in the reader, right? You're familiar with these debates when it comes to literature. And the meaning resides in the reader. And so there is no way to arbitrate between different readings. There is no like way of differentiating a, a faithful reading from an unfaithful reading. We stand in the middle, and or at least I do, and, and recognize um, that that there is perspective that I bring to the text that has to be acknowledged and woken yeah. up to and overcome. But there's still something the text is doing that isn't exhausted by my opinion about the text. Right. And, um, and so... Are the, those two things symbiotic? Well, they, I, I think they are. Yeah. Um, because if, if you're reading the text rightly, the text is shaping your perspective of it. Right. Right. But so your being married, perspective does shape it the way you ingest it. Yes. Um, and, and one of the biggest ways to avoid unfaithful readings is to realize what it is that you're bringing right. to the text before you even read a word. So I think there, there is wisdom there. Um, but if, if someone were going to say, is Christianity true? I would say, well, I think the question, better question is, is Christianity real? And, um, and the realness of Christianity. Now, I, I mean, I can, I, I was huge into like apologetics. I mean, the Kalam cosmological right. argument for the existence of God to me is really compelling. And the arguments that Jesus rose from the dead is the least, um, uh, or, or the most likely explanation of available facts. Um, okay. I still buy all of that. Yeah. But if I, but, but, but that's not what Christianity is, and it's not what it's trying to do. Right. And so if someone were to say, is Christianity real, would invite them into a community. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't just argue, you know, sort of abstract yeah. ideas. All although three of these emails are exactly that. Right. The ones yeah, we just read. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Like so when, you, I'm not, when people... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. No, no, go ahead. 
when people ask like you know what if uh what would jesus what would jesus do or say if he came today yeah right instead of yep. two thousand years ago if jesus showed up in 2022 and was like you know everyone's got some really different you know if it's your buddy down the street at his gun toting no mask wearing church or um or you know the quietest little um community focused church on the other side of town what would jesus they both would claim that jesus would say and wreck house in a different way if he showed up today yeah but it's like would he say anything different than what he has already said like he said quite a bit right so yeah yeah we're always wondering like what commentary. would jesus say to us today and it's like well uh, uh, it's, it would seem that he would go through the sermon on the mount and he would just say, you know, that this all summed up with love your neighbor. What are these three emails that we just went through? Yeah. What is the truth of those emails? Yeah. The truth is seeing humans for who they are and loving them within that. And yep. that forces you to do different things within that. Like I was thinking like the senses you said, like there's a reality. My wife doesn't have the ability to smell. She's mm. never been able to smell anything. Mm. That doesn't mean that things don't have Fragrance. sense, right? That's yeah. Right. Like it's. So it's interesting that for her that altered or like someone that's colorblind and you're like, Hey, these trees are very green. And they're like, okay. Yeah. That their the relationship with that is a little bit different. And the that's way they right. access the truth of that is a little bit different too. I don't know. I just think it's really interesting how much we try so hard to claim an absolute. Um, and then every generation that absolute is different based on their circumstances or yeah. the reality around them or whatever. But you know, it requires, it's a dance. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I can go get lost in all this. It's called epistemology, right? How do you right. know something's true? Right. And there are correspondence theories and there's something called coherence theories where truth is something that coheres with other things that you know to be true. There's uh, foundationalism, which is which is the Descartes project, the Enlightenment right. project. I want to I want to work my way down to a truth that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, and then work back up, work up yeah. kind of on that scaffolding. So it's fascinating, fascinating questions, and particularly when then you get into the Bible and, and it begins to ask um, and point to things like faith. What is the relationship between faith and truth, right? For right. for many people, they understand faith to be a leap into something we can't know whether or not it's true. Exactly, yeah. And that's not the way the Bible presents faith. Yeah. Um, and if you see Christianity, and this is the big point, if you see Christianity as one ideology among others, then or one narrative among others, then... Um, you know, you, you find yourself where I've been, which is in the, all of the, the great questions about well, what makes this, this ideology more true than other ideologies. If you understand that Christianity is a view of reality that, that is either self-justifying or not. In other words, when you embrace it, it either justifies itself as you continue in it or it doesn't, then that just opens up different avenues of understanding the story that that go far beyond and the reality of the story that go far beyond just the arguments that we can make yeah you know what i mean yeah so and then and then ultimately um there's actually i i i've read um that actually truth is a person right truth is jesus of nazareth hmm. and uh which totally opens up imaginative possibilities, right? About yeah. 
like what it would be to be center focused then. Yeah. Um, so anyway, all that is to say, man, I think that's a fascinating, fascinating issue. And, and the, there's the bemoaning of the fact that all news stations are now spin operations, right. you know, with, with biases. Um, I mean, it is, it, you literally, I can't hardly trust the thing. It's I'm also the inevitable anymore. like conclusion to those roads because everybody gets so frustrated with what they see as anti-truth that it pushes you back into like being galvanized and angry and pushing what you think is the vert. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, I can see how news organizations get so tired or angry that they just pull yeah. further back and people get less interested in trying to just present information where rather it's like, man, look at all the misinformation. We have to fight that. Yes. And then you just see yes. you land where we land. You see the church do the same thing. Yes. Like, I can't yep. believe they're letting those people in or they're saying this, or I can't totally. believe you're doing that. And now we have to, we need to galvanize harder to, to be the light, to be the truth. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> truth is a sword, you know? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, and that, and that's where control or manipulation or totally. coercion or bribery or whatever comes into play. Yeah. You know, Hey, yeah, Jesus will love you and, and make you rich or Jesus will love you and you can give you steak knives or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> but great man, Tim, great, great stuff. Steak knives, steak knives. Oops. Can you hear that ringing? Yep. Okay. That's big Nate FaceTiming me. Hold on. Hey, what's up, boy? Uh, hey, t- up? well, Tim and I are recording right now. Oh, wait, are you, are you recording like right now? Oh, yeah. Hit my <laughs> theme song. Yeah, what up, people? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's good to see your face. Let me call you in a little bit, all right? Yeah, 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 no worries. Love you, big boy. I love you, too. See you, man. Big Nate, I'm picking up for that, Tim. <laughs> you will too 10 years from now. I know, it's wild. Yeah, but only our moms are still listening. It'll be great. Um, so, Timothy. Yes. We have, um, we've been talking, and um, <laughs> you've expressed um, a desire to like, hey, let's, let's talk about this Jesus character and, and who he is and what he's like. And so the surprising aspects of his life. And, um, I read, <coughs> excuse me, a book years ago called the scandals of Jesus. And it was just a short little book. And, uh, and that led me into two other books. One of the books is calling Jesus names, the social value of labels in Matthew by Bruce Molina and Jerome Nere. And then another book, uh, which is called Who Do My Opponents Say That I Am? An Investigation of the Accusations Against the Historical Jesus, edited by Scott McKnight and Joseph uh, Modica, it looks like. And, um, and, and the idea that I, I would love to begin exploring in asking the question like, hey, so let's talk about this Jesus. One of the ways to get at what Jesus was actually really like is through the embarrassing 
or scandalous parts of the Gospels. So um, David Inkstone Brewer, great name, um, uh, wrote this book called The Jesus Scandals. And his literally his first sentence You have to be is, a writer with, if you have that name. Oh my goodness, yes. And we're tweed. He said, scandals are our best guarantee of historical truth in the Gospels. When disgraceful, embarrassing, and shocking details about Jesus are recorded by his friends and supporters, it's much harder to disbelieve them. Hmm. If there had been no scandals, the gospel writers wouldn't have invented them. Why create potential reasons for people to dismiss Jesus? The scandals supply inadvertent confirmation of some of Jesus' claims. For instance, the fact that he was charged with blasphemy indicates that he made some sort of claim uh, to speak uniquely for God. Um, and, and I remember this. I, I did a, there was a, in the 90s, a uh, group of scholars called the Jesus Seminar. I thought you said DC Talk. That, that were sponsored by DC Talk. And um, I mean, they were, you know, they informally went by Jesus freaks. And um, they met in the light because God is in the light. Wow. But, um, oh, I can keep going. Yeah, it was good. Um, and they had bellies that wiggled like marmalade jelly. <laughs> So anyway, that's dated references, all of them. Anyway, the Jesus Seminar. This was a group of scholars who represented a lot of mainstream scholarship who would vote on the authenticity of each statement of Jesus about whether or not he said it or the early church said it or someone later said it. And one of, they had these tests uh, that they would use, and one of them was called the Criterion of Embarrassment which was the most embarrassing it is, the more embarrassing it is for the person who records the event, the more likely it is to be true. Hmm. Because, I mean, we know that the gospel writers wanted to portray Jesus in the best possible light, right? I mean, John, at the end of John, it says, there were lots of other things we could have written in this book, but didn't, but we wrote these things so that you might believe and have eternal life, right? (laughs) Luke says, dude, I... Theophilus, I want you to be certain of the truth you've been taught. So here's this orderly account, what we call Luke and Acts. And so they clearly wanted to present Jesus in the best light. But um, when, when there are things that would have been scandalous to the original hearers and to the first century audience, there's no motive to include those if you were polishing an account up or inventing one out of thin air. Why would you include embarrassing details? Yeah. So we want to look, and, and one, one subcategory of embarrassing details are the accusations that are leveled against Jesus. And so, um, so they're the insults that, yeah. that, that were said by Jesus' opponents that give insight into the kind of person he was in the work that he was doing. And so... We're going to look over the next several episodes uh, with maybe a couple of interviews with other people sprinkled in, uh, just some of the insults. And, and that way of kind of deriving uh, a picture of Jesus is super interesting to me because it's like kind of coming, coming in from the side instead totally. of, yeah. you know, just, well, Jesus said he was this and therefore he right. was this. But when you look at the accusations that were embarrassing to Jesus— or embarrassing to the early church, you realize, oh, well, he must have been doing something. So like right. when he's called a friend of sinners, that tells you something very important about what Jesus was like. So 
We're going to start with his birth because his birth is one of those places where insults um, are generated. Um, and so we're going to do a bit of background. Your job, Timothy, as always, is to provide insightful commentary, ask questions, um, slip one-liners in, uh, and jokes. But I'm just going to get rolling and, and roll. giddy up. And here we go. So... Um, bloodlines in the Old Testament are gigantic because the promised Messiah was going to come through right. a, a family tree, right? In Genesis 12, God approaches Abraham and says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. In other words, I'm going to give you lots of descendants, and I will bless those who bless your descendants. I will curse those who curse your descendants. But all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through your descendants. So automatically you have, just in Genesis 12, an issue of bloodline, an issue of family tree. And then the longer the Old Testament goes on, like at the end of Genesis, we read about the, the tribe of Judah. There will come a ruler from the tribe of Judah. And then in Samuel, we read about uh, David from the line of Judah, of the tribe of Abraham. There will come a king um, in his bloodline who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And so bloodlines were, were massively important um, to ancient Israel. And particularly, as the Old Testament accounts sort of uh, show, that they lived in an area of the world that was continually conquered by empires greater than Israel. And so there was the temptation to uh, intermarry with people from other nations um, and uh, to produce children that were not sort of pure-blooded Jewish folk. Um, and and, and the, there does seem to be some evidence that when, when women were in labor, um, if the child was a boy, it was possible that this boy could have been Messiah. Yeah. Um, they assumed Messiah was going to be masculine. Um, and so there, there were, not surprisingly, rules put into the law around not intermarrying and not having like uh, questionable circumstances around the birth of a child. Um, what you would do in those days, in the days of Jesus anyway, is you would, um, two families would agree on a bride price and then they would have a betrothal ceremony where, where the, the, the daughter of one family was betrothed to the son of another family. And that was all arranged and there was a ceremony. And then they would, they would go off into a period of separation where they were allowed to see each other but not allowed to be alone. And they were not allowed to have marital relations. They were considered, for all purposes, husband and wife. They, if one of them died, the other was a widow or a widower. If one of them had an affair, uh, adultery was the appropriate word for that. I mean, they just could not have intimate relations, and they were not yet together under one roof. It's a bummer deal. And so the... <laughs> In more ways than one. Well, yes, except the, the girl was probably 11, 12, 13, and the boy was 16, 17, 18. So, yeah. you know, it's not like, it's not like you're, um, you know, you're getting married at late 20s. True. Uh, like we were. Um, so 
it, it's not surprising that there was a great emphasis on keeping the bloodlines pure, not only in the law, but just in community pressure. Yeah. Um, Jewish identity was reckoned through uh, the Jewishness of the mother. But that Jewish identity could be called into question if there were questionable circumstances around the birth or uh, the mother, the father of the child was of mixed parentage, you know, somebody who was not Jewish or half Jewish or whatever. So um, in Deuteronomy, they have uh, some prohibitions about who can enter the assembly of the Lord. The first one, Deuteronomy uh, 23.1, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord, which makes it such a big deal, uh, just as an incidental throwaway that the Ethiopian eunuch is the first person outside of Israel to hear about the gospel and be brought mm. into the church by the baptism of the Spirit. Yeah. Uh, the fact that he was Ethiopian is a big deal, and the fact that he was a eunuch is a big yeah. deal. Um, but the second, Deuter, uh, the second requirement in Deuteronomy is this one. No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. Wow. Now, the phrase forbidden marriage, there's a ton of scholarship around this phrase and what exactly it means. Uh, it, it, uh, some translate it uh, uh, an illegitimate birth. So no one born of an illegitimate birth, a birth that, okay. that could never be redeemed uh, right. between two parents who were not allowed to be together. Um, so that would be a forbidden birth or prohibited birth. Other, other rabbis would talk about it if there were questionable circumstances around the, the identity of the father. Um, if we just weren't sure who the father was. That, like if someone was claiming that God was the father. Well, I mean, I mean that's kind of where we're going here yeah. in just a second, Timothy. In second Timothy? In a second, comma, <laughs> Timothy. Gotcha. Um, you see, this is, this is the gift. This is the gift you give right here. The derailing gift. It's a beautiful gift. Um, now that person, um, in Jewish literature was called a mamzer. Mamzer. Mamzer, mamzerim, where I think is the plural. Mamzer, M-A-M-Z-E-R. I Mammograms. guess that's how you transliterate it. Definitely not those. Um, <laughs> And, and a mamzer would be the, the designation of the product of a forbidden marriage or illegitimate birth or questionable circumstances. And because the penalty was so severe, you could not enter the assembly for up to 10 generations. Like that was worse than even cursing yeah. your parents, right? I mean, that was a massive, massive punishment. The rabbis really narrowed Later rabbis really narrowed the circumstances where that uh, title would officially be applied. And um, because Jewish law required two witnesses as to, to see sin, there would literally have to have been two witnesses watching the conception of a mamzer. So mamzer wasn't thrown around as an official title a lot in Jesus's day. But the concept was floating around all over the place and is hinted at by Jesus's opponent. So when you get to Matthew, just as you were referencing, and, and Matthew gives us a genealogy that leads up to Joseph, 
And then we get a story about how Joseph wasn't really the father. Yeah. Um, <laughs> using the criterion of embarrassment, um, I'm not sure you invent this. Right. Totally. In order just to say, well, God did it. So, so the text in Matthew, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. So they're, they're not married, but they're in that year-long betrothal period. But before they came together under one roof and became one flesh, is the idea, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. So those two sentences, he's faithful to the law and he realizes he must divorce her. Right. But you could divorce in ways that were publicly shaming or you could divorce in the presence of two witnesses quietly. Gotcha. And you give her a certificate of divorce. Because Joseph was faithful to the law, so he, he recognized illegitimate birth, and he was uh, merciful, so he did not do this publicly. He wanted to uh, divorce her quietly. And then, of course, an angel shows up and says, no, this is actually from the Spirit. Yeah. Uh, Mary leaves her small town and goes to visit Elizabeth, who is the only person on earth who would believe she's actually pregnant because Elizabeth herself was so old and barren that only by the, the work of the Holy Spirit was she pregnant, although Zechariah evidently helped. Um, you could see why Mary left yeah. and went to go spend some time elsewhere. Um, in a small town, even when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, right? This would have been scandalous. But let alone when bloodlines absolutely mattered. And Matthew totally. just said, here's the bloodline. Yeah. And and then he says, yeah, but hold on a second. So if the virgin birth is true, Jesus is fully Jewish because it's reckoned through the woman, but that there are mysterious circumstances surrounding his birth. And uh, those mysterious circumstances get referred to throughout Jesus's ministry. And, and they're often... We often miss it in English just because, uh, you know, we're not totally familiar with the culture in which this was written. But in Mark chapter 6, um, <laughs> there is this absolute slam of Jesus. Uh, the chapter begins, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. Now, all the Gospels record that this, this preaching event at his hometown was a catastrophe. <laughs> um, you know, in one gospel, in Matthew uh, or Luke, I think they're trying to throw him off a cliff. Here, <laughs> when the Sabbath came, they all agree that this was not a great, great thing. When the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. This was his home synagogue. Yeah. And many who heard him were amazed. Now, amazed can have two connotations, amazed good and amazed bad. And we don't know which is meant until... They start saying, where did this man get these things? Um, what's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Because he's been roaming around the countryside outside yeah. of his hometown doing miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, this is really important but dry stuff. 
Jews in the time of Jesus always took their name, um, their, their father's name as their surname. So they always were known as the son of their father. Always. So Matthew's list of the disciples of Jesus includes James, son of Zebedee, and James, son of Alphaeus. Right? In Aramaic, that's the word bar. B-A-R. So um, in one place, Simon is called Simon bar Jonah. And okay. that was, he was speaking in Aramaic, but saying, Simon, you were the son of Jonah. Yeah. Now for really common names like Simon, they would use other naming strategies. So you have like um, Simon gets called Peter or Rocky uh, as a nickname or um, Simon's, there's a Simon of, um, of uh, Cyrene, which was his hometown or uh, Simon the leper, which was a former affliction, or Simon the zealot, which was an affiliation, evidently, that this particular Simon had. So with common names, you'd have nicknames and other ways of naming. But Jesus was never called Jesus, son of Joseph. Jesus was always called Jesus of Nazareth. And here, to call him Mary's son, even if Joseph had died, he would still always be known as the son of his father. Hmm. All right. Now, this is this is uh, Inkstone Brewer's comment. There are no instances besides this one in ancient literature of a Jew who was named like Jesus after his mother. None. Not one. So to us it's like, "Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's a No, here it couldn't have been shouted more clearly. We don't know who your father is. Right. So we will call you son of Mary. And this is 30... 30 years in. 30 years in. Yeah. So again, we just read it like, isn't this Mary's son? And we're like, well, yeah, of course he's Mary's son. That's not how you did it. Yeah. That's not how you did it. Um, And there's another, uh, I mean, another brutal conversation in John 8 where this gets brought up again. So Jesus is talking about the, his, the authority he has as an emissary of the Father, capital yeah. F, God, Abba. And he's disputing with hecklers in the crowd as he's teaching. He says, in your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Right? We referenced that with the Mamzer thing, right? Two yeah. witnesses required. And, and Jesus says, well, I am one who testifies for myself. And my other witness is the father who sent me. (laughs) Now that sets up the very natural question. um, Where is your father? Yeah. Who is your father? And that sets up a whole conversation around um, some of the Jews saying, our father is Abraham. Um, And Jesus Jesus responds to that by saying, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Uh, And he means the father of lies, this Satan. They respond by saying, no, 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 Abraham is our father. And he says, If you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did, which is worship. 
as it is, you were looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You were doing the works of your own father. Again, referring to Satan. Yeah. Now, here's their reply. We are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. Now, the Greek literally reads, we are not the products of fornication. <laughs> now, are they calling Jesus a mamzer? Well, they don't use the word. Yeah. But they, but they absolutely use the, use the concept. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it couldn't be clear. So Jesus starts talking about his father. Where is your father, by the way? Where is your father? Why do they respond yeah. that way? <laughs> and, hey, I know, I know, I know. Uh, you guys are Abraham's children, but damn, you're acting like a different father, this father right. Satan. And, and then and their, their response is, well, we're not illegitimate, like right. you. Right. Right? Which could explain, potentially, this weird part of the Christmas story where Joseph, it says, went up from the town of Nazareth, where they lived in Galilee, and they traveled south to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because Joseph belonged to the house and line of David. So he had relatives there. This was the census that they were taking. He went there to register for the census with Mary, who was pledged to be married and expecting a child. Now, again, those two ideas don't go together. Right. Why will, the time, uh, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a major, because there was no Cataluma available for them. Now, Cataluma isn't inn or innkeeper. It's guest room. And so the picture we get is of Joseph going back to his relatives in his hometown and not being welcome. Yeah. Now, I mean, Middle Eastern hospitality is crazy even today, right? I mean, that's like the most important totally, declaration. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so to, to turn out a pregnant woman totally um, would, I mean, it just strains credulity to believe that, that that's the result they would have right um they the 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 result of their actions and so and again the text doesn't say this so i'm reading in into the white spaces but if there were these circumstances surrounding the birth of jesus then that would make sense why mary and joseph wouldn't be placed in a home right. uh, but rather totally. would be somewhere else and and again i could be wrong but what isn't disputable is the fact that the circumstances around Jesus' birth hung over his whole life. Yes. In fact, one of the earliest works of apologetics, an apology is like an argument for something, uh, was written by a guy named Origen, who wrote a book called Contra Celsus, or Celsium. And Celsus was an opponent of Christianity, and we don't have his writings except as Origen quotes them. And um, Origen quotes Celsus as saying, Mary, uh, Jesus was the product of Mary and a Roman soldier named Pantera. Um, and Pantera is this play on the word virgin, which is interesting. So, so Jesus in later, in later rabbinic writings is sometimes called Jesus Ben or Bar Pantera the son of Panther. Um, uh, and the reason his birth was illegitimate was because Mary actually had an affair 
while she was pledged to Joseph with a Roman soldier. Hmm. So the one of the biggest critics, earliest critics of the Christian movement trotted out that argument. When was this? What era is this? Second century. Okay. And, um, and it's fascinating that the, the, the questionable circumstances around Jesus' birth were still there. And one of the big arguments against the validity of Jesus. So a couple of things to notice, right? You wouldn't invent questionable circumstances. You wouldn't invite that much controversy into no, a story that you want to no, sell. Or... No, and particularly when it's around the, uh, the Messiah of the promised totally. bloodline. Yeah. Some say that while well, the story of the virgin birth was invented to cover up the fact that it was an illegitimate birth. And so here the gospel's trotting out, no, it was actually God who did it. Right. And I can see why some people would think that. What's indisputable, though, is that there were questionable circumstances surrounding Mary's birth, uh, or Mary's giving birth, questionable circumstances around the identity of Jesus' father that result in insults throughout his ministry and after. And if you believe the core of the story that Jesus really was the result of the, the work of the Holy Spirit, then the fact that God chose to manifest God's self in this way says all you need to know about the kind of Messiah Jesus was going to be. Right. Right? And and so the Christmas story, and, and again, we do all the cute shepherds and all the stuff, and I get it, and I love it. But the Christmas story is like the declaration of the heart of God in cruciform terms, right? That God, instead of claiming the rights and privileges, is going to take the very humblest form, but not just an infant, but an infant born to teenage parents in the middle of nowhere, with, and neither of whom have much lineage to speak of. Where We don't read about Mary's lineage at all. We read a bit about Joseph's. But even then, we're born under circumstances that raise questions for both Mary and Jesus the rest of their lives. Yeah. And after. And so, you know, this doesn't prove in any way, shape, or form the virgin birth is true. It just proves that there were questionable circumstances surrounding the birth, which sort of confirms a bit of at least the beginnings of the Christmas story um, and forces us into a decision about, well, Either these were true uh, accounts um, uh, referencing the virgin birth, or they were invented after the fact to cover up scandalous circumstances. But what's not in dispute (laughs) is that Jesus came this way. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It It would be an absurd way to try to cover up. I have so many questions, and I want to ask the correct ones for people that are listening. I feel like there's someone driving their car right now and they're like, ask this question and I'm not going to ask the right one. The thing that I love about this series or this idea and why I kept asking it is, you know, not to restate it a thousand times, but the humanity of Jesus, what it means to be the flesh and blood, um, understanding that aspect of Jesus. Cause again, we understand the esoteric, De- deistic version of who Jesus was, right? 
one that conquers death and heals and says he's, you know, always has the right comeback and all that kind of stuff like the this. But there's this flesh and blood version that perhaps is in that first 30 years that we only get small little pictures of. Yes. But yes. A, a big piece of that is the flesh and blood of the story that you just told of Mary and Joseph. Like, imagine Joseph in this whole story. Yeah. Like, we get that little picture of him where he's like, yeah, well, I'm going to be honorable. I'm going to divorce her in quiet because that's that's the that's merciful mercy. and right yep. thing to do. And But he doesn't. And he raises this kid that no doubt people were always like, dude, Joseph. Yeah. What were you thinking? What are yeah, you thinking? And, and Joseph, Why are you doing this? <laughs> Joseph dies early in the story. We only read about Joseph when Jesus is 12. We don't read about Joseph anytime after that. So we just, we assume that he died somewhere within that time period. And so Absolutely. he just remained as Mary's son. Yeah. Going forward. That's a whole thing too. That's a... Yeah, I just to throw the flesh and the blood on there of a of a kid who's Ray. What is what does that tension look like when he's six or right. eight, right. or fifteen or twenty two? The tension of being constantly seen as mm-hmm. a possible illegitimate kid or yeah. um, a bastard kid or whatever within yep. that scenario is just there's so much there that I think we can learn about Jesus even through Mary and Joseph and. Mm-hmm. Back to what you were back to what you were originally thrown down about seeing the flesh and blood, mm-hmm. right? I mean, dang, there, there's, and there's one scholar, Bruce Chilton, who wrote a biography of Jesus uh, that, that takes a pretty sort of progressive view. But one of the things that he argues is that this is part of the reason why Jesus had such compassion on outsiders. Totally. Is that um, he welcomed the mamzers of the world um, because he stood in solidarity kind of with them, not officially again, but the, you know, the public insults to his honor and his parents' honor were there for all to see. So it's just a cool, not cool, that isn't the right word, but it's, (laughs) I mean, just... It frames... It's intentional, if anything. Like yes, you see that God had a really different idea of how this was going to go than obviously anyone prior. Oh my! There's goodness. this Ani. Do you do you know Ani DeFranco? She's yeah. A, like a folk political folk artist. I had a huge phase where I was I loved her and was very into her music. She has a song called Fuel, and there's this line in there that says. They say that alcoholics are always alcoholics, even if they're dry as my lips, even if they're dry as my lips for years, even if they're stranded on a small desert island with no place in 2,000 miles to buy beer. And I wonder, is he different? Is he different? Has he changed what he's about? Or is he just a liar with nothing to lie about? And so it's like this, I, I think about that within how Jesus relates to people where they're not, we, we do that. We, we like to cling to titles of how we miss the mark or i'm Mm. sorry we like to cling to titles of how other people miss the mark Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and keep them in that thing so they're doing this to jesus right like you Mm -hmm. are you're this you're this where's your father yeah exactly and then we do that with a lot of labels for people that have been working through things and we see them only as what their misstep is not as their restored humanity is yeah and you see that with what jesus does where it's like 
he is attracted to or he seeks out those who have been labeled and have been titled as other yeah and restores yeah. their humanity to them rather than at like rather than like substantiating their title of how they missed yeah which i think is very compelling yeah it's and the way he it yes it's the way he shares shame mm. um with people who are outsiders no i think it's i think it's brilliant so um friends that that is kind of the first one i don't know they're probably um five or six more of these lawbreaker blasphemer demon possessed glutton or drunk glutton and drunkard <laughs> friend of sinner um that all provide sort of backwards insight into what jesus must have been like and so uh, we'll just explore these and if you have comments questions we'd love to hear them email us if you would and uh until next time friends we'll see you later Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxology. You can also Join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology Podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.